What is up guys, Dalton here. Before we jump into this episode, I just wanted to check in with you and say thank you. This is a very special episode for the PT Coffee Cast. This is our 100th interview that we've done here. It's crazy to think over the last two years we've had the opportunity to sit down with 100 amazing practitioners, sip coffee, and talk about the profession. Thank you guys for tuning in. If you have listened to all 100 interview episodes, kudos to you and please tag us. We will give you a big kiss. Um, If you're brand new to this podcast, welcome. We hope you guys have been enjoying it. Um, Yeah, your feedback and everything has pushed us and means the world to us. So continue to do that, guys. It helps us be better, helps us put out the best possible content for you. A couple announcements. If you guys don't know, we have partnered with Physio Network. Physio Network is on a mission to improve physiotherapy standards worldwide. They do this through their online platform where they offer amazing continuing education opportunities such as their research reviews, um, their master classes, a Facebook group, etc. Um, we, we heavily support the research reviews. They put out 12 research reviews per month in both written and audio form. Articles are selected and appraised by industry experts. This month, the newest episode came out and there are interviews put out by Teddy Wilsey, um, Todd Hargrove, Sandy Hilton, um, Tom Goom. There's many people out in the space that are both practitioners and um, in the research area that are putting out amazing reviews. So you guys can check those out. They're clinically relevant and recently published. They take less than five minutes to read and review, saving you hours of work. The one problem I hear all the time and something I struggle with is how do I keep up to date with the research? This is a great way to do it. It gives you snippets of the research. If you're interested, you dive deeper with the full article. If not, you move on to the next topic. It solves that problem. They also have the opportunity to join a Facebook group, do CEU points for completing quizzes. It's an amazing, amazing platform. If you guys want to start your seven-day free trial, you can click the link in our show notes or our bio on Instagram. And you guys can get your seven-day free trial starting today. Also, guys, we've recently launched our newsletter called The Movement Monday. If you're interested in joining that, you can click the link in the show notes to join. If you want to check it out on Instagram, check the link in our bio and you can access it there as well. On the 100th interview episode of the PT Coffee Cast, we sit down and talk with Chris Herbs, a physical therapist and run coach out of Boston. He is part of the amazing team at Boston PT and Wellness, and he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to running. We dive into things um, such as what to think about if you're a new runner, some common injuries or mistakes we see people making and how to overcome them. There's a ton of tangible information you guys can take away from this, so we're super excited to get that out to you. I'm going to stop talking now. Go grab your cups, brew a coffee, and enjoy the 100th interview episode of the PT Coffee Cast. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to the Movement PT Coffee Cast. My name is Dalton, and with me, as always, is my beautifully bearded friend, William. William, how are we doing today? You're going to have to start saying mustached, friend. I know. I know. <laughs> it's coming back, though, man. It is. I can, I can tolerate you now a little bit more. When you first got rid of it, I was quite upset, and I almost didn't even want you to keep your video on while we did a podcast, but now I'm, I'm opening up a little bit. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. Uh, how are you doing today? 
I'm good, man. It's been a good day so far. You know, standard, standard day. The new normal is here. Um, had a, had a coffee, did a little bit of reading. Now we're going to hop on the podcast. I'm, I'm good, man. Things are good. Yeah. Not much changes day to day right now. That's for sure. I don't even know what day it is, to be honest with you. I think we're in <laughs> April. I believe so. <laughs> okay, good. At least we're in the right month. <laughs> Um, all right, guys, we're going to bring on our guest today. Uh, we're super pumped about it. We have Chris Herbs on the show. He's a PT out of Boston who works with the Stellar team at Boston PT and Wellness. Um, he's also very passionate about running, both himself and as a coach through Strive Running. Chris, welcome. Thanks for having me on, guys. Appreciate it. How, uh, how's things going for you uh, up in Boston? You know, we're, uh, we're doing, doing as well as we can. Um, Everybody on the team's holding up pretty well, and uh, I know that most of our patients seem to be doing pretty well for the most part. So, it's—I I was saying to one of my friends earlier—everything feels pretty normal until like you go outside and you go to the grocery store, and like everybody's wearing a mask. You got to wait an hour in line to get in the door, kind of thing. But once once you start to see those things, you're like, okay, yeah, stuff isn't normal. The sun's sun's still shining, the sky's still blue, but there's some weird stuff going on. But it's uh it's becoming a new normal for better or worse and hopefully it wraps up sooner rather than later yeah man i'm with you i actually you know i have one question for you so oh yeah so you're from upstate new york right yes and i and from your instagram you're a huge boston sports fan am i correct i am is that is that like allowed so where i'm from in upstate new york i'm from the albany area and it's a weird no man's land where it's like equidistant to boston New York City, like Montreal, I mean, Buffalo's a little bit further out, but you get you get a little bit of everything for hockey. You get Islanders fans, Rangers fans, Sabres fans, Bruins fans, Habs fans, um, okay. and it it pretty much goes that way for all the sports. So my dad was actually born out in Boston, um, only stayed out here for a little bit while he was super young. But my grandparents have lived out here for a while, so we grew up being big Boston sports fans. So okay. it worked out uh, worked out well, I guess, for the last couple of decades. Yeah, I was I was laughing because I saw you uh, on your Instagram post that you were watching like the Stanley Cup Finals from like whatever whatever year it was. I'm like, oh yeah, dude, we got no sports. You got to rewatch <laughs> old hockey playoff games. <laughs> NHL playoff archive on YouTube has pretty much every single playoff series for the last like 20 years on it, which is fantastic. <laughs> so I've been rewatching the Bruins 2011 run. <laughs> Hilarious! It's fantastic. What's what that? Was you said so. No Leafs Stanley Cups, then, eh? Uh, uh, for for better or worse, no Leafs Stanley Cups. <laughs> I'll have to. I'll rewatch Game Seven of uh, the first round of 2013 at some point. That'll that'll be yeah. fun for me. But I don't think there'll be too many people up in Toronto that'll be rewatching that these days. <laughs> um, Chris, why don't you just give us a little bit, uh, just a little bit of background about yourself and kind of how you ended up in Boston working at uh, at the clinic with Zach and the crew there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm from, like I said, upstate New York originally and spent all my uh, years of schooling out there. I went to uh, SUNY Oneana in central New York for undergrad and then upstate medical university, which is another SUNY program out in Syracuse for grad school. Um, and kind of knew that I just always wanted to wind up out in the Boston area. I was very familiar with it. It's a nice middle ground as far as distance goes from home. Um, definitely a bit of a different vibe than 
being in a bit more of a rural suburban area. Um, and I was familiar with Zach basically just through social media because he just absolutely kills it on social all the time. Um, and I was fortunate enough to go to a relatively, um, I say kind of like a progressive physical therapy program where we did get a lot of really good information on pain science and super up-to-date um, research and literature was really thrown at us. And so I looked around as we went along through the, through the years of PT school and I was thinking, man, like, I feel like we're learning a lot of really great stuff, but there's a lot of places out there that I feel like I wouldn't be as comfortable working at because they don't necessarily match up with the way that I was taught to look at things and the way that I was taught to critically think about things. Um, and when I knew that I wanted to look into the Boston area, I remember I was like, Oh yeah, that Zach guy, he, he, he's works at some place in Boston. Let's take a look at that. And I went on and I did some research on the clinic. I thought this place looks fantastic. Um, they had a really great PT on staff, Danielle Adler, who works up in Portland, Maine right now. Um, and she does basically what I'm trying to do right now, which is kind of do the two for one PT running coach sort of setup. Um, and I basically cold emailed uh, our boss, Dave, and shot a message and said, Hey, here's my cover letter resume. Like think it'd be a great fit based on like the way that it looks like you guys do things and let me know if anything ever opens up. And fortunately uh, some good timing worked into uh, worked into things for me. And I wound up uh, having a chance to jump on board with just a really, really great team at this clinic. So it's been fantastic. That's awesome. Cause we had that timing was probably around when we had Daniel on the podcast. Mm-hmm. I think she was just in the midst of that transition or had just made that transition. Mm-hmm. That, that's hilarious. What uh, what good timing. Yeah, it was great. And she's, she was like, it still is such a great like mentor to a lot of us at the clinic. And just for me, especially just getting the ball rolling with starting off uh, the stuff with strive and getting my website and business up and running. Um, like she had never even met me and she was super down to jump on phone calls and just be a great resource to me to really help get the ball rolling. Um, so I owe a lot to her for that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. That's yeah. We, I had the opportunity to meet her obviously when I came down to Boston, I met you and that was, that had to be two times flies. I think it was about a year, a little over a year ago. Yeah, maybe I think now. So. so, and, and you were just starting, like, were you just starting to practice then? Yeah, so I started in September 2018 at Boston PT. So yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. And then how has that, how has that just whole transition been in general, like going from school into into like the game? <laughs> yeah, um, it, I, it's as with, with the group that we have at Boston PT, it's been about as smooth as I could possibly have hoped for it to have been. Um, I said, I, I still say, but especially early on, I thought that when I looked at, looked back at when I was at three months in, I look back at where I felt like I was three months ago and thought, man, I, I feel like I'm doing things like so much differently in so many ways. And just based off of all the experience I've already gained. And then three months later, I looked back at where I was at that point and thought, man, all this great experience I have, I feel like how, how did I get by without knowing all these, like, uh, just sort of things that you get by doing more reps um and just every every chunk of time that went on i felt like i was getting further and further along and just more and more prepared for um just the day-to-day grind of being a pt and learning how to implement things and just access the research and just try to apply that as much as i could day-to-day so it was definitely i think like most people say the first 
year for six months or two a year, somewhere around there. It's, I felt like I was spending a lot more energy early on just to do the basic stuff where I say, okay, you've got a full schedule and you've got to do time management stuff and learn how to communicate with people on a better, uh, on a better level. And just handle all this information that's getting thrown at you constantly. Um, and I felt like as we got closer to like that, like eight, 10 month period for me, especially, I was like, okay, I feel like the amount of energy that's being spent on like procedural things is way lower. And that was really when like a light switch for me where I was like, okay, now I feel like I'm able to more easily think and critically think and apply things that I've learned and reach back and pull back um, on things that I have experienced with working with patients earlier on. So I think that the first little bit is just overwhelming for everybody for a little while um, to a certain extent. And you don't even realize it so much when you're in it. That's the crazy part. Yeah. It's like, like you look back and you're like, Oh man, my head was spinning. I didn't realize it, but I was like, I was getting swamped by this and you just get so much more comfortable as time goes on naturally. And that lets you just feel like you're doing a better job and able to just kind of think a little bit more thoroughly. I think it's super hard to slow down uh, the basics. Like that's something I realized, um, you know, I'm still working on it now, obviously um, constantly working on it. But when I was first starting, I remember me and Dalton talking about how even just something simple, like manual muscle testing, like, Obviously, I was doing my manual muscle testing, something super simple, but yeah. I wasn't getting anything from it. You know, like mm -hmm. my time, slowing it down. I wasn't seeing how the person was reacting. I wasn't actually assessing, you know, mm -hmm. just going through the motions. I feel like in your first two years, it's like, or I mean, it could be less for some people, but uh, it's, it's really like actually understanding how to slow things down and gain uh that you can gain from those simple basic things yeah yeah I, I, everybody has to have some sort or ideally everybody has to have some sort of framework um to structure things around and it's a fine line between having a super rigid framework that turns into a checklist that you have to go through every single session and kind of in in some ways it allows you to have like a super organized objective uh but in other ways it can really get in the way of making a connection with the person that you're working with and get in the way of critical thinking sometimes if you're thinking okay i've got these 12 things i need to be able to do in this eval and if i don't go through those 12 things then what am i going to do um and once you get to a point where you you don't need to throw out that framework but find some ways to add some flexibility to it and work it into the different individuals that are in front of you, work it into the uh, interactions that you're having with them um, just to fit a little bit more smoothly. Yeah, that's a great point, man. I never really, I never really thought about it in that way, but it definitely makes, it gives you more freedom to really get to like the nitty gritty of what matters usually with, with the clients when, when you, you know, you slow down and you actually apply those things. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I mean, like a lot of us say, it's the biggest thing that you can do is make a connection with the person that's in front of you. And obviously you want to be able to get as much information as you can from an objective. And obviously the subjective is huge too. Um, you don't want to overlook things from an examination standpoint, but 
it, to a certain extent, there's some things where you can, you can always go back if you need to. Um, I try to make sure that like the first thing that I do is try to make a connection with the person when they come in the room. And we all, um, like Zach and the rest of the team, that's one of the things that they really, uh, pressed me on early on was just, if you can see how long you could go for like three to five minutes when the person first walks in the door to not talk about physical therapy, like just get to know them, make a connection, learn what matters to them and go from there. And I think that that sort of thing, just allowing somebody to listen and talk uh, and not letting getting every single special test that you wanted to do out of the way, like, don't let that get in the way of having a good conversation and like letting the person tell you what's going on, because that's how you're going to really learn the best way to help somebody. Yeah, you never know what they're going to end up telling you, right? No, absolutely. And it's like, they, they have the answers for the most part. Like let, let's let them help you. Like they, they know why they're there. Yeah, no. And, and one of the things that I also really liked about, um, you know, the clinic there that you guys are at is it just seemed like you got, they really did a good job of fostering like what mattered to you guys as, as clinicians. So what I liked was like, you know, obviously you're in the running space and you're, you're kind of building your own brand underneath the, the umbrella of what like Boston mm -hmm. PT and wellness is. And, and I think that's really cool for a clinic to really push that and foster that stuff. So how, how has that been for you kind of jumping into doing your own thing under your own brand with like the running and really trying to specialize in, into that? Yeah, it, it's been good. Um, I, I think that it, it's always tricky to, to balance. Like there's only so many hours in the day. Um, and I think that kind of right before everything hit the fan recently with um, the COVID situation, I, I got to the point where I was realizing, okay, I think I'm, I think I'm starting to hit my capacity with, how many people I can work with at once um, from a coaching standpoint and still be a full-time clinician and make sure that I'm giving my coaching clients everything that they deserve and give them their money's worth. Um, and that doesn't need to be a super high number. I think somewhere around like five to seven people per month would be the absolute most I would want to do. Um, I like to be able to do things a little bit differently, I think, than probably some other coaches. I think that part of that comes from having like the PT background as well. Um, but I think that being able to keep it at a pretty minimal um, client load is a good way of going about things for me. Um, for the most part, I, I started off things um, on social media a little bit through Instagram. Um, but honestly, it, I, I laugh about it. I feel like the most, the most, um, the majority of the people that I get that come to see me as a coach find me through my website. Um, anybody, if you pay enough money, they'll give anybody a website. Apparently um, I found that out. So I got a website, um, worked on some of the SEO side of things and uh, I'm pretty high up on Google. And so the majority of people that uh, I get come to me through that, I can go out and do race expos. I can put up stuff on social media. I could do, 500 things to grind and grind and grind and try to get people to like find me in that like relatively organic sense. But like the majority of my clients definitely come through just stumbling upon me on, uh, on the internet. And it's funny. It's like the, the harder I work, I feel like to acquire new clients, the less successful I am. And sometimes why I just let things happen. Um, 
it works out really well. Um, and the other side of it too is obviously as a PT, I'm able to meet lots of athletes and lots of people who are runners. Um, and even if they're not necessarily people that I worked with as a PT, there's a nice little interplay between former patients that wind up reaching out for coaching, even if it's a year down the line. Um, and vice versa, if somebody who I coached at one point or I'm coaching needs something, they're able to very easily hop into the clinic, um, and get treatment that way if they need it. Um, hopefully we can avoid that. It's part of why I'm trying to be a as good of a coach as I can, hopefully to avoid those injuries. Um, but it works out really well that we can kind of provide that one-stop shop for people in that regard. Yeah, that's definitely an awesome like relationship between like for the people that you work with. Right. Cause you know, you already, you already have like a, a relationship built with them, whether they work with you as a coach and now they're seeing you in the clinic or vice versa. So it really, it seems like it would flow um, really nice for you. And yeah. I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No. And I was going to say like the, the running side of things just in general right now, I think is like a super important thing to be talking about because just given obviously the weather's turning. So most people who like to run seasonally are starting to run again. Um, but I think also add in this, this COVID thing where exercise is very limited. Running is, is a, an amazing option for people to, to, to exercise. But I think a lot of people are jumping into it without any real direction. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because it's such a, when you think about running, it's like everyone can run. So it's a great thing, but there's more, I, from what I'm learning too, is there's more intricacy to the running process that we don't really think about. So like, I think for you being a coach and seeing a lot of people, maybe we could just start off by, I think people learn well from mistakes. So what are some common maybe mistakes or, or misunderstandings you see people make when they hop into like new running? Yeah, I would say that um, the biggest mistake that most people make is either doing too much too soon or going too intense too often. Um, and I would say that the biggest, like the biggest uh, most common presentation that we see for that is people that wind up running the vast, vast, vast majority of their mileage in kind of this weird gray zone where they're not going quite slow enough to uh, just hit the aerobic system in the way that we want to, but also are not going necessarily fast enough to stimulate other changes. And they wind up not necessarily having the benefit of either side of the coin. Um, so I think that the biggest thing is to really focus on uh, like polarizing your training essentially. So keep the easy days really, really easy. And if you do have some harder days in there, then that allows you to really get after the harder days and make sure that you're putting a good effort on those workouts. Um, one other thing that I think is super helpful to mention too is to a certain extent, uh, running one or two or even three times per week, I would argue is more difficult than running four or five or six times a week. And obviously you want to take off days and that's super important and take your recovery days. But, uh, I know plenty of people that will come in to see us in the clinic that are doing one or two runs. I, I like people that'll be getting ready for the Boston marathon is a great example. There's so many runners that do awesome work, raising a ton of money for charity for that race. Um, and a lot of those people are relatively new to running and are doing this as like a big bucket list sort of item. And a lot of those people come in and it'll be like, okay, like your knees are bothering you. Tell me about your programming. Tell me about your training. What have things looked like for you over the last couple of weeks, months, 
and they'll say, yeah, um, so I'll run like four miles on Tuesday, and then on Sunday, I'll run somewhere between 15 and 20 miles. And I'll be like, okay, that's great. Like, what are you doing on the other days? And they'll be like, oh, you know, like, not too much, like life's busy. And that's totally fair and totally reasonable. But I would rather have that volume of mileage spread out over a handful of days, rather than have people go kind of boom bust where there's super, super high chunks of volume on a couple of days. And other days, we're not doing a whole heck of a lot. And it doesn't even necessarily need to be running on all those days, but getting out and spending time on your feet, going for some long walks, going for some brisk walks, things like that, especially for people that are newer to running. That's a really good way to start to build up your overall capacity for it. Um, I tell people just because it's a nice uh, number to shoot for. The ACSM uh, 150 minutes per week is a nice target for just cardiovascular activity. So if you only want to run two or three days a week, that's totally fine. But shoot for getting some walks in there on the other days where you're building yourself up to just hit that very, very baseline recommendation for cardiovascular fitness. And I think that that'll go a long way for a lot of people, especially as they're starting off to get into running. To, uh, to swing back to the first point that you made, uh, more about like intensity uh, yeah. and, and that sort of like polarization, like how do you go about guiding people with respect to intensity and gauging that for themselves? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, and so that, that comes down to a couple of different things. So it, it depending on how much, um, tech you have access to. Some people have access to heart rate monitors. That's a really great way of going about things. Um, trying to keep your heart rate and you can go through, there's obviously a number of different formulas. You could sit down and go through a carbonin formula. You could sit down and do just like a generic 180. Uh, there's, I, I'm blanking on uh, the gentleman's name, but there's some research I liked where um, if you do just a nice simple like 180 minus your age, um, that gives you a pretty good ballpark estimate um, for where you should be for like your absolute max for just a nice easy run. Um, there's a little bit more to it with adding a handful of beats per minute. Um, if you're coming off injury or at taking away, taking away for coming off injury or adding, if you've been healthy, things along those lines. But if you don't have access to a heart rate monitor or something along those lines, shooting for, if we're talking about just a regular old RPE scale, shooting for something where it's a three to five out of 10 uh, sort of effort on an easy day, that's a pretty good way of going about things. Um, and if you're going for a little bit more than that, um, shooting for more of like a six or seven on your harder days is probably a good spot to go. If, unless you're trying to be an actual sprinter, you probably don't need to be going too terribly much harder than that um, for a sustained effort. Yeah. And when you say like three to five, let's say on the RPE, just for people who maybe don't understand those numbers specifically, is that something you're telling people like you could have a conversational, like it's conversational pace. You should be able to keep a conversation talk as you go. Whereas like the six to seven would be a little bit harder. You know, maybe you're unable to keep that conversation. You're feeling like you're pushing yourself. Is that kind of in the realm Absolutely. of like, yeah. Yeah. Conversational pace is a really, really good metric for a, quote unquote, like easy effort. Um, and then getting up to more of like that six or seven out of 10 sort of effort. That's probably something where you could 
probably blurt out a couple words here and there as you're going along, but it wouldn't be a, uh, wouldn't be a smooth conversation. So that's a pretty good, uh, pretty good cutoff for that sort of effort. And then the second portion of what you're talking about was more to do with like the frequency of, uh, and you know, how you sort of get to your volume. Um, sure. curious, like if you can just give us a little bit of an idea as to why you feel more, uh, more frequently is, uh, better than like, uh, less frequently, but getting the same amount. Yeah, absolutely. So I would say that just generally, generally speaking to stimulate the changes that we want, um, just doing a little bit higher of a frequency is has just been shown to be a little bit more effective. Um, and it allows you to get to that baseline level of fitness that will make running easier for you, um, a little bit quicker. So it, it's, it was one of those things in my exercise physiology class, uh, back in, I don't even remember, it must've been grad school early on, but I, I remember I was laughing because at that point is the classic PT school situation where you have a couple hours a day where you can go and run or go to the gym or something along those lines. Um, and then you're sitting down for probably eight hours in a classroom in a lecture all day. And they're talking about how you'd be essentially better off getting up and going for just a nice casual walk for 10 minutes once an hour than you would be going and running for an hour or going to the gym for an hour and then sitting for eight hours the rest of the day, just from an overall health and wellness standpoint, um, which was a little bit annoying to hear as you're out there trying to, <laughs> trying to do the best you can in PT school. I'm like, Oh yeah, no, you'd be better off to sleep in and going for a walk once in a while here. Um, but I think that just get, getting uh, used to spending the time on your feet and getting that um, repetition in is going to be particularly helpful for people and just helps to kind of build the overall tolerance a little bit more quickly. It's a work smarter, not harder sort of situation too. Um, I think that jumping, people have these goals of like mileage they want to hit where they're thinking, okay, I want to hit however many miles this week, but I only want to run twice a week because I don't want to do, I don't want to do too much. Um, and people are surprised when you you told, you tell them, you know, you, you don't necessarily need to, it's a little different when you have like a race on the horizon, but when you tell somebody, Hey, you're probably better off going and running three miles, four times a week than you are running six miles twice a week to start off. I know it doesn't sound like three miles is a lot, but your capacity and tolerance for being able to go out there and hit six miles right now after not having run for a year is probably going to be a little bit, probably going to be a little bit lower than you're anticipating. Yeah. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest, I mean, from myself personally, and then just working with some people who are runners is like, or new to running is like the biggest problem people run into is they don't think for some reason we don't think of running in the same way as maybe we would think of like going to strength train. Like people sure. will go from not running, all year right or even maybe be new and they're like yeah let's go out there and let's run like this 5k whereas you wouldn't walk into the gym and throw 300 pounds on your back and try to squat it right but this whole like it's a little bit of a different thing because i think running is so easily accessible for people and i think a lot of times people run into that problem of, of volume management and what are some ways that you maybe educate people to understand that because it can be it can be difficult to process a little bit i think from more from uh, like a volume management sort of standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so I, I think that that's a great example. I like to talk about um, just kind of comparisons to other activities like you're talking about. Um, and like, I'll talk about swimming with people a lot too, because it's like people think about running as something that's so much more natural um, and everybody does it and doesn't really think about so much of the volume standpoint or the form standpoint or the intensity standpoint. But then you look at something that's uh, at face value or traditionally thought of as more of like a skill-based sort of activity. People think, Oh well, yeah. Like when you're a kid, like you, or even an adult, if you don't have a big background in swimming, people are doing triathlons will take swimming lessons. People that like really, really put a lot of effort and thought into some of these other things. Um, and somehow just running gets kind of overlooked from, from that standpoint. Um, but specifically talking about just kind of the importance of, limiting the volume i i think it just kind of comes down to looking at um overall time on feet and talking to people just about what we what would you normally be doing and like especially for people that are um are not necessarily as active it's like how many things do you do over the course of the day that you're spending an hour on your feet a lot of people, the answer is absolutely nothing. And people think that, okay, I can go out and just jump right into it right off the bat. Um, I think that just talking about and framing it in, in the context of other activities and realizing that even if you're active with biking, there's different, there's a big difference between the stresses that are put on the body from, but between biking and running or going on the elliptical and running. Um, swimming and running and things like that. So I think that giving people comparisons and just talking a little bit about just kind of the research that we have that shows that just the overall intensity of running being a little bit higher than a lot of other activities because it's a plyometric activity because of the force uh, that you have to be able to, to manage, um, to manage with like ground impact forces, ground reaction forces, and just, being able to deal with it in a different way than most other activities require. So another thing I'm curious to, to hear about is this idea of, of like running form, um, a particular way to run. Is this something that you discuss with like your, I mean, even new runners or people that have been running for a while, is it something that gets brought up a lot? I know there's a little bit of like camps, like you should do heel strike. Should you not heel strike? There's like a lot of different thoughts around that. So I'm wondering if that's like a discussion piece you have with people. I, so it's a discussion that I am always prepared to have with people um, because typically your average runner that's coming into the clinic or is coming to me from a coaching standpoint has an idea of what they have been taught to believe is the right way to do things or something that they are doing wrong that they need to adjust and change to be able to either run more safely or run more efficiently. And like you said, there's so much information out there and a lot of which is contradicting. (laughs) Um, And it's just tough to come up with a good idea of what you should be doing if you're just an average runner out there who doesn't necessarily have a background in this. Um, And while, while to a certain extent, um, I definitely would argue that running is a skill and there are, components to it that we can all work on to be more efficient and potentially be as a byproduct of being more efficient, potentially decrease some of the risks of having some issues pop up. 
Um, there's not necessarily one right way to run by any stretch. There's a lot of normal variability. Um, and for the most part, most people run the way that they run for a reason, whether it's an anatomical reason or some sort of ingrained pattern. For the most part, a lot of people have been running for a really long time. Um, if they're like a more seasoned runner that, and have some sort of quote unquote abnormality that they were doing perfectly fine with before they came in to see you at the clinic, or they're doing perfectly fine with before they came to see you as a coach. So you diving into some super nitty gritty detail of their stride analysis that has probably been there for their entire lives or for a really long time and never had an impact on anything. That's probably not so much going to be a factor uh, that needs to be stressed on a super, super high priority level. Um, that being said, there are definitely a few things that we like to focus on. Um, a couple of which being um, like the cadence and uh, vertical oscillation. And you could also put like uh, peak hip abduction in or peak hip adduction in that uh, category as well. Basically, looking at how well people are able to maintain a uh, single leg stance while they're going through stance phase without crashing into a ton of adduction, um, making sure that people aren't taking these big lopy strides and bouncing up and down a ton. Um, and honestly, upping the cadence, um, which we could dive a little bit more into in a second here, is really a great way for some people to kind of check all those boxes and try to help a lot of other things fall into line. Do you find with the uh, the cadence thing? Because I've I've uh, obviously read a little bit about that as well, and mm -hmm. uh, have tried that with some of the runners I've worked with in the past. Do you cue a quicker cadence, or do you pull out a metronome and kind of uh, you know like time what their steps are normally, and then take it back from there? How do you kind of go about that process? Yeah. So so kind of uh, from from the cadence standpoint. Um, I go about things in a pretty, um, pretty organized manner. So the first thing I'll have somebody do is I'll have somebody run on the treadmill. Um, what first thing I'll have them do once we're going through the analysis standpoint of things, but I'll have them hop up on the treadmill and I'll say, whatever your easy pace is, let's plug that in on the treadmill. I'll have you run for a couple of minutes, pull out the, pull out the camera and we'll take a little slow-mo video, take a look at things while they're doing that. I'm doing the math on their cadence at their easy pace. Um, don't give them any information on that quite yet. Then I'll have them go at usually around like a tempo pace or maybe like a 10 K pace, uh, based on there's a chart that I like to use, um, where you could plug in somebody's easy pace and it gives you a good estimate of what their effort should be for some other race distances or efforts. And I'll have them run at that pace. And again, I'll take a little bit of a video. I'll do the cadence now or cadence math and find out, okay, did it change from their easy jog to more of an up-tempo effort? Did it stay the same? And then see how that may have impacted. Essentially, biggest thing for me is where they are landing from like an initial contact standpoint. After that, some people look great. Like there, there's, there are plenty of people that come in where I say, hey, we're going to do this thing on the treadmill. Um, we might not change a thing. There might be one or two minor things that we work on. Um, that will help a lot of other things fall in the line. Either way, don't worry too much about it. Just run however you feel comfortable. 
And there's plenty of people where we go through running at an easy pace and running at an up-tempo pace, and there's not a thing to change from that standpoint. And I say, awesome, great, don't worry about it. Don't, don't overthink it. We're going to keep things going at that um, in that way. And then there's other people where I'll say, okay, yeah, you would probably be somebody who could benefit from upping your cadence by 10% or so. And that's why I'll pull out a metronome app and I'll bump it up to roughly 10% higher than where they were. And again, I'll have them go through at their easy pace running with that metronome. And then I'll have them do the same thing at the higher pace, um, at the faster pace with the metronome. And then we'll go through and we'll look at the videos. And again, I think that it's super easy to get sucked down rabbit holes and get into way too many nitty gritty details about um, running gait. But it's really helpful for people to look and see after the fact, okay, I know it felt a little bit funky when I ran with the higher cadence initially, but I see what you're talking about uh, when you say that I was landing out super far ahead of my center of mass or I was landing way out in front of my body. I could tell that it felt softer and I could see it on the pic on the video that it looks a little bit more along the lines of the things that you were talking about. Um, and I think that that's a really good way of going about things for like a quick and dirty cadence analysis and adjustment if necessary. Then you can run like a Dalton, like a gazelle. Exactly. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Um, is that something that you'll explore with people when they're coming in with like a running related injury? Yeah, so it, absolutely. It depends on, um, depends on the type of injury, obviously, and their overall tolerance for running at that point. Um, if somebody's super irritable, then it's definitely a case where you kind of wind up with like a chicken egg scenario where it's like, okay, if they're doing something funky on the treadmill right now, but their knee is killing them or the Achilles is killing them or their foot's killing them, are they running this way because their foot's bothering them or is their foot bothering them because they have this thing that we could work on? Um, so if somebody's a little bit more on the irritable side, um, we probably won't jump on the treadmill right off the bat. Um, but if, like, if somebody's got a pretty high tolerance and they've still been getting out there and running and it's somebody that might be having a little bit more of a warm up effect where they have like a tendinopathy and they're feeling better as they go along. There, there's definitely some cases where coming in right off the bat with a running related injury, it can be good to hop up on the treadmill, but not necessarily every case. Yeah. Interesting. I think, I think running is a tough one because people can get in this cycle, right? I think there's people that start running because they want to start a new way of exercising. They enjoy it. They go out and maybe they mess up the intensity and volume thing we talked about before. They do too much too fast. They get painful or irritable. And then usually two, one of two things can tend to happen. Like people will be like, ah, oh, running's not for me. It's not good. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to run anymore because this, everyone was right. Running's bad for you. And then the other side of things, people will usually most likely if they don't seek care they'll rest they'll wait till pain levels come down they're feeling a bit better they try to go back out and run and they run into the same almost the same problem and they get in this vicious cycle so i'm curious to hear like how do you go about maybe working with someone that walks into the clinic that that just started running um, is having some of this maybe like overuse type tendinopathy injury and they're like what do i do yeah absolutely so i spend the vast majority of my time um, when I'm working with runners, especially early on um, going through, I'd say probably like a good half of the, the initial evaluation um, 
in a lot of cases will be spent going through and talking about appropriate programming and talking about, um, and so I, I follow my certification for coaching is through the Roadrunners Club of America, RCA, and they have a really nice um, PDF template um, for a pace chart. So basically you look at if somebody ran like a 20 minute 5k, you find 20 minute 5k on the chart and then it gives you similar times for every distance up to the marathon. And then based on that level of fitness, it says, this is what you should do for an easy day. This should be what you do for a tempo day. This is what you should do for longer intervals on the track, shorter intervals on the track. And obviously nothing is hundred percent concrete and black and white. And there's room for um, a lot of room for adjustment within those suggestions. Um, and the RRCA pace chart is not the only one out there. You could go online and there's find plenty of calculators, whether it's a McMillan calculator or a Jack Daniels uh, running calculator and you plug in a time and it gives you some pretty decent suggestions and they're all pretty ballpark similar in where they tell people to go uh, from a pacing standpoint. But early on, if I think that uh, the person I'm working with has primarily a, like a load volume sort of issue that has led to their injury, um, we'll spend a good chunk of time going through that and have a little PowerPoint that I'll even run through with some people that, um, I'll just chat through with them just to kind of give them a good understanding of, Hey, okay, here's a way that I would recommend structuring a week. Here's the idea of some different types of workouts you could do to get that 20% of harder running because it's still important to work in some higher intensity things just to stress the body in some different ways. Even if you're a little bit earlier on in the running uh, process, a little bit more on the novice side. Um, but I think that going through and just teaching people about the, that side of things is super, super important if they're appropriate for it. And it's, it's funny because you, you'll, there's two types of people. I think that how do you know how, what the percentage breakdown I, I would say is um, it might be like 70, 30, where most newer runners who come in with some sort of stamp issue where it's from a standpoint of doing too much too soon or going too intense too often you'll tell them these things and you go through this sort of educational discussion. And I'd say probably 70% of them, the reaction is I get to run slower. They're like, you're kidding. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. And they're like, Oh, thank God. Like, <laughs> I, thought, like I thought this sucked. They're like, I, I'm so tired of feeling like I'm about to throw up every time I finish a run and having that light bulb moment of realizing, Oh, okay it doesn't need to hurt really bad every single time I run from a like effort standpoint. I don't need to feel like I'm killing myself. That's a really, really big light bulb moment for a lot of people. Um, and then there's a, a, a different group of people where you tell them, Hey, you might want to slow down your easy pace by like 30 seconds, 45 seconds. And there's a little bit of resistance um, and that's okay. But it comes down to just having a good conversation with somebody and earning that buy-in and earning that trust and getting them to go along with you a little bit on that journey to kind of try to adjust things. Um, so that's kind of the way that I go about things with that sort of population. Do you think a big part of it often is that piece? Like obviously you, you spend a lot of time on educating them on what you just talked about in terms of obviously if they're injured, there's other things that you can work on always with regards to strength or, you know, maybe there's some mobility issues. They can just distribute loads a different way. So they're not as sensitive with certain areas, but do you find like oftentimes it's a lot of that program management that really 
is the the key to getting people like out of the in the discomfort and back on track to like what they want to do i i do um the literature i've, I've botched the the study i don't have the name off the top of my head of uh who did the research but in that uh powerpoint i go through that I put together about a year back um some of the some of the research shows like roughly 70 to 80 percent of running injuries are due to programming errors or can most likely be attributed to running uh, to training errors and it's obviously always a multifactorial sort of situation it's impossible to ever say that one one thing is the cause of it um but i think that if you if you don't have a if you don't have an ability to appropriately program for somebody or like adapt their programming um to a more appropriate level then you could do all the strength training and all the hands-on symptom management sort of things in the world but if they go right back out and they are running their like their vast majority of their mileage at tempo pace or threshold pace or half marathon pace they're probably going to be seeing you again sooner rather than later um and i think that that's Oh, definitely the programming side of things is only one side of or one component of the overall plan of care uh, i think that building up and running is a super super intense activity and you need to be able to build up the body's tolerance to withstand the forces that you're putting on it as a runner so i think that strength training is super super important for runners and there's a lot of different ways you could go about that um I think that like runners should be lifting pretty heavy. There's some pretty great research that shows that there's a very good benefit for runners from lifting particularly heavy. Um, but again, if you're not letting somebody do the programming side of things in an appropriate way, then I, I think that the rest of it's going to kind of be, uh, be for not. Yeah. No, I, uh, sorry. Don't. No, go ahead, bro. <laughs> Um, it's interesting. There's a couple of, uh, articles I've read on physio network, uh, some running articles by Tom Goon and mm -hmm. the ending of both of them was kind of like, yeah, you know, like uh, step rate could definitely be a factor, you know, more research is necessary. And the other one was kind of like, Oh, you know, there's some factors we can think about with respect to like running mechanics, but more likely education on low management volume is probably <laughs> you know the main uh piece of the piece of the pie it's kind of interesting. yeah absolutely and it's like at the end of the day um i know chris johnson says this a lot um <laughs> the, the only way to avoid running injuries is to not run and, <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't mean that you shouldn't run and it doesn't mean that running is necessarily any more dangerous or like uh high risk than other activities um but it's just it's one of those things where it's an endurance sport. There's things are going to pop up. It doesn't necessarily mean that you always made some critical mistake. There's plenty of seasoned veteran runners out there that have injuries that pop up. And again, it's always multifactorial. So it's tough to say what exactly was the straw that broke the camel's back. But I think that most people like there's, it's so great right now to have apps like Strava and like training peaks and things like that, where you can very easily look back and go through somebody's training logs and say, okay, like it could have been this from three weeks ago or uh, three months ago or something like that, where you had a random spike in intensity or volume where you did a, back-to-back -back workout because you had a had to travel for work and all of a sudden you 
crammed a couple of high intensity days a little bit too close together. Maybe that's part of what kind of set you off on this path. Um, but being able to go through and really investigate that nice and thoroughly is always a good way of going about things. Um, but also there's definitely a strong benefit to things like strength training um, for runners and coordination training and just trying to build up the ability to efficiently run and tolerate those stresses that you're putting on the body. That's just building up capacity is always going to be helpful for people. Yeah. And I would love to touch on that, that strength training piece a little bit. Um, because I think, I think now that like more than ever, people are considering strength training when they're, when they're running and, and taking on running as their sport, which I think is, is great. Um, and then I guess maybe it's more specifically with the people that you coach that, maybe you're training for races or, or trying to compete maybe at a higher level, but I guess you could even comment maybe some people who are just out there running for fun. Like how do you go about that strength training discussion? Are you having like your, you're just your casual runners strength training as well, just like you would have your, your elite or higher level athletes doing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if again, it's one of those things where it comes down to, just like anything, what a person is interested in doing and what they value. Um, and if somebody has absolutely no interest in something that you, you could give somebody the best programming in the world, but if it does, if it's not meaningful or valuable to them, they're not going to probably go along with it. Um, but I think that making a nice sales pitch, even to people that are more on the novice side is beneficial. Um, I try to have all my runners doing some capacity, some level of strength training in some capacity. Um, even if it's just, I think that I just tell people, if you could get it twice a week, like work with me on this twice a week, um, we'll come up with a nice little two day split. I'm big on just like anything with the running, keep the hard days hard and the easy days easy. I'll have people do their weight days on like their higher intensity running days. Um, so in that way, you're truly able to recover on the off days or on the easier pace running days. Um, but I love to try to get people into uh, as much of a strength training program as they're able to fit into their schedule and able to tolerate. Um, they can, if they have barbell access and they're appropriate for being able to work up to that level, that's super great. Um, but if not, even just working in um, some single leg work, um, in from a body weight capacity can be helpful for people, especially times like this. It's tough to <laughs> tough to get gym access and things like that. Um, but there's, you could still get creative and get some good work in for folks. And with respect to like exercise selection, um, do you feel like it's any different than if, if it were just not a runner and you were just helping someone with training? Are there certain types of exercises you would steer them towards or? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, just like, um, just like any other activity, I mean, the principles of strength and conditioning are still going to apply to a runner. Um, and I think that the, if there's anything that I do, not necessarily differently, but I would say that I want to emphasize with runners, it's as much as I can, I like to work in some level of single leg control work, um, some amount of accessory work that's focusing on that just because running a bunch of little single leg squats over and over again. Um, so if we can get somebody to spend some time doing single leg squats, single leg deadlifts, um, different variations of things along those lines, that's going to be particularly helpful for people. Um, you might not have, uh, everybody doing 
focused work on the gastroc or soleus, but we know that that's super important for runners. So if we can work in some gastroc and soleus work for distance runners, that's particularly helpful. Um, but the principles obviously are also going to be the same. Um, and just like anything else, you want to be specific to the activity that they are trying to go into. And so trying to keep things as specific to running by working in some of those single leg sort of activities is going to be helpful for people. And what would you tell them like the purpose of the strength training is for their running? Like what are they getting out of the strength training and why is it meaningful to, to their running? Cause I think that's a big thing for, for these people who love to run. They're like, I don't care about strength training. Like I just want to run. But yeah, why is absolutely. That? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that the biggest way of selling people on it is talking about performance for most folks. Um, especially if they're on a little bit more of a experienced level, um, or a little bit more of a competitive level. It's, and the, we all know that the, the research isn't super strong, um, from a standpoint of being able to decrease injury risk. Um, in theory, it makes sense, um, to build up the tolerance, um, and capacity for the loads that we're going to be putting on the body. But I think that the, the way to kind of sneak the strength training into the runner's program is to say, Hey, this could help you get faster. Um, <laughs> if we can increase the power, if we can increase your ability to just uh, to generate force, that can be beneficial for you when you're out there running your 5k, running your 10k, running your marathon. Um, and that's kind of the best way that I've been able to get people to kind of buy in. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a good point for sure. People, people always want to get faster, man. You can tell, mm -hmm. you tell me you're going to make me run faster. Give Absolutely. me the weights. Give me them. Absolutely. Why don't you just tell, tell people where you can, where they can find you. Um, I know I saw on your Instagram that you put out like a free digital download, I think for like a, a couch to 5k thing, like let them know where they can get some of your, your content. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so on Instagram, you can find me at Strive Running. Um, and like Dalton was just saying, I have put out a free Couch to 5K program for folks that are interested in getting into running during this time. Um, so if you're interested in that, shoot me a DM on Instagram and I shoot out a little waiver to folks and then I'll have that emailed back over to you. Um, you can email me at coach chris herbs at gmail.com um and my website is striverunning.com awesome thanks chris appreciate you coming on man really really good information i think this will be valuable for a lot of people who are jumping into the running um stay safe out there man and uh go bruins hopefully they win that uh that series absolutely yeah <laughs> <laughs> who knows how that's gonna shake out no uh yeah thanks for having me on again guys uh anytime i'd be happy to do it so stay safe and i'll talk to you guys soon okay cool see you guys all right see you guys